If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar. By the end of 1945, The wartime alliance between the US, Britain and France on one side and the Soviet Union on the other was beginning to fracture and the city at the centre of these escalating tensions was Berlin. In his new book, Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world, the author Giles Milton reveals how rising suspicion and acrimony between Stalin, Truman, Churchill and Attlee led to diplomatic flashpoints, the Berlin airlift and the formation of NATO. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizen, Giles discusses how the battle for control of Berlin in the second half of the 1940s fired the starting gun on the Cold War. Giles, your new book, Checkmates in Berlin, tells the story of the Allies' scramble to exert control over the German capital at the climax of the Second World War, an episode that fired the starting gun on the Cold War. Now, You've written books on D-Day, British guerrilla warfare campaigns in the Second World War, um, espionage battles against Lenin's Russia. Now, why did you now decide to turn your attention to this particular episode in history? 
Well, I found it fascinating that there are so many hundreds of books are published each year about the uh, Second World War, and yet almost no one writes about the um, period immediate post immediate post war period. So the period from from nineteen forty five to nineteen forty nine, and I think this is an, it's an incredibly important period because really what happens in those few years sets the the shape of Europe and the world for decades to come. So I felt that there was a story to be told. Um, a very powerful story um, of geopolitics, uh, which is focused on this fantastic battle for the sort of the heart and soul of Berlin, the, the broken capital of Germany. Now, as you just mentioned there, this is a like a critical period in, in 20th century history. What, what made Berlin such a prize to the victorious allies? Why was gaining control of of this city so important to what unfolded over the subsequent 10, 20 years? Well, you really have to go back to the Yalta Conference in, in February 1945, the great, where the big three meet. So you've got uh, Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill. They meet in the Crimea really to thrash out uh, the post-war global order. You know, who's going to get what? Um, but by the time, of course, the war comes to an end, the Red Army, Stalin's army, is victorious over, over huge areas of Eastern Europe and Central Europe. Um, and so, uh, and also much of Germany as well. They've, of course, got into Berlin way before the Americans and the British. Uh, but it has been agreed that Germany is going to be divided up. So the Soviets are going to get the east of the country and the uh, the Americans and the British are going to get the west of the country. They're going to do the same with Berlin, the German capital. So likewise, the Soviets get the east of the city uh, and the Americans and Brits will get the west of the city. But there's a major problem. Anyone looking at a map can see there is one big problem with this plan, and that is that Berlin lies in the very heart of Soviet-occupied Germany. So um, this city is going to become a sort of symbolic of, of the great crash, a clash that's going to occur between the Soviets and the Western Allies. Who it was, it was hoped at the Alta Conference that this great wartime alliance would continue into the post-war period. And that's what Washington and Whitehall really wanted to happen. But it's not long before tensions begin to build, and it's clear that. All, all of those tensions post-war are really going to be focused on the German, the, the former German capital. Now, uh, you quote uh, Robert Hines, the deputy military governor of the British sector of Berlin, observing that the city was on the brink of the worst scourge of disease and pestilence since the Middle Ages. Now, how bad a state was the city and its population in at the end of the war? Well, you've got to remember that Berlin is a city in total ruins. You know, the, the RAF, the Americans, they've been bombing it from the air for, for, for you know, for several years uh, intensely. And then you've had the Red Armies come in and just, you know, uh, mortared and shelled the city. So it's a city in ruins. There's no city administration, no, no functioning government. There's no water, there's no gas, there's no electricity, and there's almost no food. So it, uh, and all the hospitals have been destroyed completely. So it's a city and people are living in in ruins in their basements in the cellars it's an absolute uh you know humanitarian disaster in the waiting and so the when the both the soviets move into their sector of the city and the western allies into their sector sectors they they've got an absolute disaster to deal with they've got in the western sectors alone they've got two and a half million berliners who are starving and and they, they've got to bring food in and they've got to bring, bring it in pretty quickly so how did they go about dealing with that 
and how quickly did they deal with it? Well, the problem, one of the, the, the first problems that they face is, of course, that the Soviet army, the Red Army, has captured Berlin and got there two months before the Western Allies. So the Soviets um, already, they control the whole city um, by the time they, they deign to allow the Western Allies into their sectors. The Soviets had done what they can, and they've, they've done quite a good job at repairing water supplies and some electricity supplies in their sector of the city, but they have um, declined to, to do anything in the Western sectors, except, of course, loot those, those sectors and take away whatever they can. So when the, when the Americans and the British arrive in their sectors, not only is there no water, no electricity, no gas supplies, as I've said, but also they find that all the great industrial factories, many of which are in the British sector, have been totally looted. The, the Soviets have simply carted off, off everything as they see it, for reparations for all the damage that the German army is, of, you know, has done to, to Soviet Russia, of course. So um, they, it's, you know, they, they walk into an absolute disaster, basically. One of the things that really struck me about uh, when I was reading the opening chapters of the book was how in the opening diplomatic exchanges between the Soviets and the Western allies, I mean, it, it seems to me that from reading your book, that Stalin totally ran rings around his Western counterparts from, from Yalta onwards when he extracted uh, territorial gains at, at the expense of Japan and established control over swathes of Eastern Europe. He seemed to get pretty much everything he wanted. I mean, is that a fair assessment? And, and if so, why, why were the Western allies, why, why did they misjudge the Soviets so completely at the beginning? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think both at Yalta and at the Potsdam conference, I mean, Stalin ran rings around. Um, well, first of all, at Yalta, of course, it was Churchill and Roosevelt. He rang, He really got everything he wanted. But then you've got to remember, Stalin was in a very powerful position because his Red Army was already controlling much of the territory that he coveted. So, you know, he wanted great chunks of Poland. Well, his troops were already sitting, sitting inside those, you know, chunks of territory. Um, but it also has to be said that I think um, certainly Churchill did not perform well at either uh, Yalta or at Potsdam. And, you know, I've read all the diaries of the... <clears throat> of the key players. So you've got people like Anthony Eden, you've got people like Sir Alexander Cadogan, who were at these conferences. And in their letters and diaries, they say that Churchill was simply not on form. You know, he he hadn't read his briefs. He was drinking heavily. As Cadogan put it, he was drinking buckets of Caucasian champagne. Um, and, and I think Church, um, Stalin had a very clear idea of what he wanted. He had very good aides and advisors with him. And, and he indeed did get, it, get what he wanted. And the, in fact, after the Potsdam conference, the Soviet diplomats, they couldn't quite believe that they, they, they got everything. The British were hampered at Potsdam by one major problem. And that was the British general election occurred in the middle of the Potsdam conference. And um, it took several weeks to count the votes because, of course, you know, all the troops were overseas still. So they had to count all those votes. Halfway through the conference, Churchill discovers he's lost the election. And this is this is not great for your negotiating team where halfway through you've got a new prime minister coming in and um, a new foreign secretary, the, the pugnacious Ernest Bevin. And so I think that also really helped Stalin to, to get what he wanted. I mean, you, you just mentioned Ernest Bevin, and, and, and I, think, I think you say in your book that Stalin was a little bit wary of him, wasn't he? And how, how did the British stance change after Attlee and Bevin came in? 
Yeah, I think um, had Bevin been there from the beginning, there might have been a slightly different outcome. Bevin arrived at Potsdam, said, I'm not going to have Britain barged about. You know, he was very, he was a heavyweight and he was determined to take on Stalin. But, you know, as one commentator said, you know, the term, the big three, the magic had gone. The conference was near its end already. And I don't think, I think really there was not much that Attlee and Bevin could do by that point. You know, it was too late. But very importantly, Potsdam gave Bevin the chance to meet Stalin. And from the moment he met him, he did not trust him. And really, this would set, um, become a hallmark of Bevin's foreign policy, that this guy, He's not a he's not a leader you can do business with, you know. So already you see the wartime alliance beginning to fracture in Bevin's own mind. Why were the Soviets so hostile to the Western Allies from the beginning? Were they preparing for another war? I think that Stalin had very fixed ideas about what he wanted and was determined to get it. And of course, Churchill wanted to install a a pro-Western government in Poland. For Stalin, this was an absolutely um, sort of matter of principle that he was going to install his own puppet government in Poland. So I think that um, Stalin had clear ideas of what he wanted. Of course, Churchill was very anti uh, anti uh, communist anti stalin from the from the outset and um i mentioned in the book a quite remarkable blueprint for war that churchill set in motion in the spring of 1945 at the very end of the second world war churchill asks um, his military planners to plan for a massive military attack on the soviet union it's called operation unthinkable and you know all the files are still in the in the national archives and it's a detailed plan for the americans and british to attack the soviet union it's quite extraordinary this is sort of world war 3 being declared you know before just at the at the very end of world war 2 <laughs> What example of the uh, sort of tensions between the two sides and the Soviet attitude to the Western Allies was Stalin's avowals that Adolf Hitler was still alive. Um, I think you might have said possibly in British-held territory. When and all the while Stalin had confirmation that the German leader was in fact dead, and he was so com- so determined to sort of spin this story that Hitler was still alive, that he had the person who confirmed Hitler's dead locked up in a gulag so the truth couldn't leak out. Why was Stalin so hell-bent on misleading the Allies on this point? Yeah, this is absolutely extraordinary. When you read um, what happened is the Soviets found the, the grisly, charred corpse of Hitler. And most importantly, they found the jaw, his jawbone, and they had his teeth. So they, they, went to, they, they found his, the dental nurse that looked after Hitler's teeth. And she was able to find the radiographs of his teeth and prove without a shadow of a doubt uh, that this was Hitler's corpse. And this was yeah, told to Stalin, um, who immediately saw this as a potential uh, way of you know, getting one over on the Allies, but on the Western Allies. So, yeah, he had it absolutely hushed up. The fact that Hitler was indeed had committed suicide and his body has been burnt. And he started to insinuate that the British were holding a, a still alive Hitler in their, in their zone of occupied Germany. It's an extraordinary accusation to make against, against your supposed ally, you know. Um, and this would be repeated time and again. And it just made the British look really, really bad because uh, they, they couldn't offer any proof, really. <laughs> so uh, this, this story run and run, and, and, and Stalin was very happy to let it run and run. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. This is where Ernest Bevin played a major role, really, is the decision that uh, the Western uh, countries need to form some sort of defensive alliance that really, that the, um, the Soviets really only understand strength. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. No, t- I, I think the two of the most intriguing characters in your book are uh, Frank Howlin, Mad Howley, one of the leading U.S. soldiers and negotiators in the city, and his British counterpart uh, Robert Hind. Now they uh, they seem to take a quite a different a- approach to ne- negotiations, didn't they? Howley was a far more combative, sort of sh- shoot from the hip operator. who described the Soviets as liars, swindlers, and cutthroats. While Hind was a bit more, but I'd be right and say a bit more buttoned up and conventional. How did they rub along? I mean, they 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 seem they do seem to have uh, made the relationship work, don't they? They do. So, so um, Brigadier Robert Looney Hines, to give him his, his full, for the full phrase, he's a real product of British India, you know, product of the Raj. And he's going to come in and run the British sector rather like he's uh, the umpire of a cricket match. You know, it's all about fair play and decent treatment and everything. Very sort of old school British. And he, he very much sees himself and his men as standard bearers for the empire. You know, they're, they're flying the Union Jack and, uh, you, you know, it's all going to be fair minded. By contrast, Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley, uh, uh, as, as you said, um, he's going to run. He's coming in to run the American sector of Berlin, and Howley really is is a sort of um, guy. He he's a he, he's an action man. He's a cowboy in a way, and he he believes in getting things done. You know, there's there's going to be no red tape. There's going to be no rules unless they're his own, um, and and he's going to get the uh, American sector up and running as quickly as possible. Now these two men. They've actually trained together for this for this job because the, originally it was going to be a joint uh, British American operation, the running of the Western sectors. But it, they eventually divide into their two sort of respective uh, military governments, if you like. So with Brigadier Hind in the British sector, Howley in the American sector. And they are chalk and cheese. And really, it was expected that these two men would never, ever get along. But actually, they got along incredibly well. They they had a real uh, respect for each other's differences, I think. And although Howley was forever talking about these, you know, fuddy-duddy Brits who've come out of British India, um, they, they, they managed to form a very good working relationship. But there was a slight difference in policy in the sense that while Hind was going to carry out Whitehall's policy to the letter, and that meant getting on with the Soviets. 
Howley took a very different approach. The moment he arrived in Berlin, as he actually says in his diary, he said, I came to Berlin thinking the Germans were the enemy, and I very soon realised that the Russians were now the enemy. And so from day one almost, he's in there and he's, he's looking over towards the east of the city and thinking, these guys cannot be trusted. And didn't that also lead him into conflict of his uh, superiors as well? Yeah, this is where it gets really fascinating because Frank Howley basically he begins to form his own sort of freewheeling anti-Soviet policy within the American sector of Berlin, whereas Washington, they want to do absolutely the opposite. They're desperate to keep on good terms with Stalin. So um, you could see him really as a, as a rogue operator. I mean, the, the, the Soviets themselves called him the cowboy. And there is a touch of that about Frank Cowley, that he's decided, forget what, what Washington say, he's going to do what he thinks is right. So what did Berliners themselves make of the occupying forces and, and how did how quickly did life change for them in the say four year period that your book describes? Well, at the very beginning, of course, so the Red Army comes in first. So the, the Russians are there for two months with no, no Americans and no Brits in the city. Berliners are desperate for the West, Western Allies to arrive because, of course, uh, the Soviets, I've mentioned, they've been looting, uh, but also they've been raping. I mean, the accounts of rapes are they're pretty grim to read, it has to be said. Some 90,000 Berlin women had to have medical treatment for rapes at the hand of the Red Army. But that number, the number of rapes, is known to be infinitely higher than that. So not only have you got the absolute chaos and humanitarian catastrophe of the city, but you've also got a, a huge number of very traumatised people, uh, women, living in the city. So they're desperate for the uh, Americans and Brits to arrive. And of course, when the Americans and Brits do arrive, they, they're just desperate that they're where they're living is going to fall within the Western sectors of the city, the, the Western occupied se sectors of the city. It's, of course, it's a, it's a slightly weird situation because the city's been divided up, but it's not like there's boundary lines and everything. What happens is the all the, the three powers, and of course, the French will soon come in as well and take their bit of the city. They all start erecting signs. And I'm sure many people listening to this will have seen pictures, you know, you're now leaving the American sector. That all began in, in uh, July 1945, when the three powers were ensconced in the city. Um, and so, yeah, the, the dividing lines were marked up like that. Um, and of course, while uh, each power was running its sector of the city, you can't run a major capital city uh, in, you can't just divide it up like that. You also have to have some sort of central body that's controlling the city as a whole as well. The second half of your book is dominated by the Berlin airlift, something you describe as, as, as a siege. Um, this operation saw the Allies transporting hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies into West Berlin after the Soviets had choked off railroad and canal access to the city. I mean, how enormous a logistical undertaking was this? So um, absolutely everything needed by the Western sectors of Berlin has had to be brought in by road or rail. And of course, when the Soviets shut off the road and rail links, that leaves only the air. They, they've negotiated these air corridors. Um, but here's the problem. Ber the Western sectors of Berlin, so 2.4 million people, to keep them alive every day requires 13,500 tonnes of supplies. As an absolute minimum, it's calculated an absolute subsistence minimum, the city, the Western sectors require 4,500. That would just about keep the population off starvation. 
a Dakota plane, which is the, 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 the kind of workhorse plane that, that they have uh, access to, can carry two and a half, uh, two and a half tons in, in any given flight. So it is logistically impossible to supply two and a half million people with a few Dakota planes bringing in two and a half tons of food um, at a time, or so it's thought. But in Berlin, there's this rather brilliant British boffin called Air Commodore Re- Reginald Rex Waite, he's called. And he he's a classic sort of boffin figure, brilliant mathematician. You know, he's always got his slide roll playing around with maths and mathematical equations. And he sits down and tries to work out, actually, could it be possible to do this? And he sees there's eight airfields in Western Germany, and there are two airfields in the Western sectors of Berlin. And he works out that if you basically you have planes flying round the clock on, on numerous different levels in the sky, landing every 90 seconds into these two airfields, you could just about, uh, it was just about feasible to supply the city, um, you know, and keep people alive. But he thinks you could probably only do that for a few weeks. Uh, it, this is not a long-term uh, proposition. Um, he puts it to the British commandant. The British commandant says it's ridiculous. He puts it to the gov- British governor of uh, Western occupied Germany. He says, don't be ridiculous. This can't be done. He takes it to the Americans and the Americans say, you know what, we'll have a go at this. And thus the airlift is born. And um, what kind of signal did this send to the Soviets? The, f- the fact that the, the Allies were prepared to take this like massive logistical undertaking on and pull it off. I mean, that must have, that, did that take the Soviets by surprise to a certain extent? The Soviets simply thought this was impossible. Stalin thought that there's no way the Allies uh, would be able to pull this off, partly because they'd, they'd been, you know, they had intimate knowledge of the siege of Stalingrad, where the Luftwaffe had tried to supply Paulus and his men, his troops there, um, with an airlift, and it had failed miserably. So Stalin was very, very confident that... Um, that the airlift would fail and basically he could starve the Western sectors of Berlin into submission. Um, and he really, I think he he didn't quite uh, realise just how much the Western allies would throw at this. So as soon as, as they've decided that the airlift is, they've given it the green light, basically, planes start arriving from all across the world. So Americans have got airfields in, you know, Hawaii, Honolulu, Alaska, everywhere. They start bringing in planes. And the British, likewise, from the colonies, dominions all over the world, they bring the planes into Germany. And they it, it, it becomes clear they're really going to have a crack at this and try and make it work. Um, you know, everything has to be flown in. It's not just food. We're talking about fuel, everything, you know, petrol, um, even salt has to be flown in. You know, they need, I don't know how many tons of salt a day is needs to be flown in. That's very difficult. You can't put a fill a, fl- a plane full of salt because it will drop down into the into the fuselage and, and, and corrode all the cables. What do the British do? They bring in Sunderlands, which land on the water. Um, all the cables, because it lands on water, the cables are in the in the in the roof of the plane, so they are able to carry salt. So they think of everything. They uh, they use foodways a lot. So they they bring in dried food, powdered food. Everything is powdered, but it means they can bring in just enough to keep the population alive. To what extent was the formation of of NATO uh, the product of what went on in Berlin in in, in a few years before the, the treaty was signed? I think there are there are two really important things uh, that need to be mentioned that happened 
in uh, the spring of 1946. The first is famously Winston Churchill gives his um, Iron Curtain speech. And he, in that speech, which is given in America with Truman's blessing, in fact, with Truman at his side, President Truman at his side, he sets out that the Soviets are intending, are trying to dominate um, Eastern, Central, and possibly even Western Europe. It's a real rallying cry, call to arms, that everything has changed. And this um, this sort of awakens the Western world to what's going on. Because Churchill says, look at what they're doing. They've taken over all the great capitals of Eastern Europe. That's one thing. Second thing happens uh, just a few days, actually, after uh, Churchill's speech. It be- um, it, the news is announced that um, one of the staff members at the Soviet embassy in Canada has defected to the West. And with that defection, he brings um, a whole sheath of documents setting out that the Soviets have a massive espionage program in North North America, and they're trying to infiltrate the uh, American nuclear program. These two things, I think, stun the Western world. And it makes um, President Truman and Attlee realise that Stalin is no that that wartime alliance is over. Stalin cannot be trusted, and out of these two events and other things that happen as well, and particularly things that are happening on the ground in Berlin, you have two things. You have the Truman Doctrine, and the Truman Doctrine uh, sets out that any country threatened by the Soviet Union or by communism will be protected by the Americans. And you, the second thing that happens is you have the Marshall Plan. This is a great plan of George Marshall, which is essentially to rebuild Germany, Western Germany, and rebuild Europe. And uh, these are these two things really are throwing down the gauntlets of the Soviet Union. They're suddenly saying, okay, we're going to do exactly what we need to do in our in in the sector in our sphere sphere of influence, basically. And so at that point in 1946, I think the post-war world really begins to change. Sure. And, and so your book ends with the, the formation of, of NATO. How would you describe the balance of power between the Soviets and the Western allies at, at this point? Yes. Yeah, so all, all the while, throughout 47, uh, 46, 47, 48, um, you know, foreign ministers are meeting, they're talking, they're looking at what's going on. Um, and they realise, as I say, that the Soviets can't be trusted. And gradually, and this is where Ernest Bevin played a major role, really, is the decision that uh, the Western uh, countries need to form some sort of defensive alliance, that really, that the um, the Soviets really only understand strength. This is what Frank Howley has been saying from the perspective of Berlin, that if you, if you, um, you know, they're, these guys are gangsters and you have to treat them like gangsters and you have to be really tough on them. And so this gets built into Western foreign policy, the idea of bringing together um, the signatory countries of what will be NATO. Um, and the central tenet of NATO is going to be that attack, an attack on one country is a, an attack on all of them. And this changes everything, really, because the Soviets now know if they push you know, themselves too far into Western Europe, they're going to have the entire Western world attacking them. Um, and thus really begins the Cold War at this point. You know, this is where the great standoff that's going to last for decades. In response to NATO, of course, you get the Soviet Union forming the Warsaw Pact. And at that point, the world is split into two, you know, giant uh, and very hostile opposing camps. And finally, Giles, what lessons do you think this episode in history, what lessons do you think it holds for us today? I mean, to what extent do we 
still live in the shadow of what occurred in Berlin in the second half of the 1940s? Well, I think, you know, if you look at our British relations with uh, with Russia today, I mean, uh, they're not exactly friendly. Um, and I think that um, the West has to respond uh, extremely strongly to anything that Russia does. I think, you know, it, they're right to impose sanctions when Putin plays all sorts of games. Uh, I think, you know, Frank Howley in many ways is right that you simply have to stand up to this. You can't, you cannot afford to be roll to, to allow them to roll over you because once you give in on one thing, they'll take the next thing. Um, so, I mean, I, it's very interesting reading. You know, Howley wrote a wrote a book of his time in Berlin. It was written, you know, in 1950, early 1950s, and you think some things are, are still immensely applicable to to today's situation. That was Giles Milton. Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world, was published by Hodder and Staunton in May. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about the Klondike goldfields. Goldfields.